But okay, here's James. Here's a question. We we talked through Turkey Camp. This this was a hot topic for us every night. So if you could only pick one to hunt the rest of your life, would it be an elk-sized turkey or a turkey-sized elk? Turkey-sized elk for sure. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds but, like bingo. so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but no oh, question in my mind. Oh. The opposite. Could Here you imagine a velociraptor that gobbled? Here it comes. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, <laughs> I, I think we, we tried that once historically, but uh, <laughs> no, man, that, that sounds bad. That sounds scary to me. And I, I've wanted lots of scary stuff. And you know that, that I'm glad I did that. Um, but yeah. Oh my gosh. A, a, a 20 pound elk. That sounds amazing. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Gentlemen, welcome. It's good to see your faces. I wish that we we're here together. I've got with me Cody Kellum and Trent Fisher from Born and Raised Outdoors, some good friends of mine and terrific elk hunters. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Doing well. Doing it's well. coming. It's, yeah, it's, it's getting it's, close. Yeah, I was just talking to Eric a few moments ago and he's like, can you believe it's elk season? And it's, it's in the realization that it's still not elk season yet because there's too much to do and August is... The end of it is near. So I guided an elk hunt this weekend because okay. we've got rifle cow seasons that start August 1st. And that was my first one of the year. But still, like, even as I'm like packing up optics and like trying to scramble around to find stuff that I haven't touched since last season, it still didn't feel like it's not really elk season. I mean, we're elk hunting. Yeah, of course we're elk hunting, but it's not elk season until it's archery season. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've, we definitely have had those cool, crisp mornings, though, that feel, you know, follows yeah. in the air. It's on the near. So it's it's feeling good. Tell you what, man, it's it's a strange year. Um, of course, we're in a historic drought. Um, but, you know, the ground that I was just hunting on and, and checking out, I haven't seen it since, gosh, June or, or so. Uh, I've never seen feed ever that's eaten down the way it is right now. Um, the elk have consumed some like dried out annual grasses that typically they won't touch ever. Um, like they ate the cheat grass, uh, they ate Medusa head, they, they ate everything. And the water levels and ponds and wallows and things like that, they're either gone or they're lower than what I see kind of at the end of September before we start getting the, that October preset that we can typically count on. It is a, a different ball game out there and the elk don't look very good. The deer don't look very good either. That's what I was um, kind of wondering. How does that, how does that look for herds? They're stressed. Um, they're, they're a bit thin. The calf recruitment is a lot lower uh, from what I can tell. And that's pretty limited observation, but it looks like calf recruitment is already pretty low. I've got some concerns. And then the elk behavior was really interesting. They're much, much more skittish than, uh, than I'm used to seeing. And you can always chalk that up to a number of things. It's never just one thing. Predation. 
coming up on a full moon. Um, there's a storm rolling in. There's a lot more predation. And, and I think that the, the stress from, you know, being malnourished and, and uh, limited water sources makes their movements a little bit more predictable, which is good thing for predators, bad thing for elk. But my, uh, my hunter was like, well, this is great. You know, they haven't been hunted since last season. They get hunted every day of their life, just not by people. So. <laughs> were you guys successful? Of course. Yeah, we're, we're super yeah. successful. We had a terrific time. Uh, we did not kill an elk, if, if that's what you mean. Um, but, uh, but we did a little bit of shooting. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Say no more. I got you. I got you. <laughs> Tried to straighten the trigger out with the safety on one time. Yeah. That, but, that uh, works. Just pull hard. You can pull through that. <laughs> you can pull through the safety. <laughs> you can pull through that. When it breaks, it breaks. Just got to control your breathing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Man. Take a protein shake or something. Yeah. There you go. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like you said that the year, I, I mean, it's, we, we've been struggling here locally. We've, we're hunting a new area and Trent's put a bunch of time in and, you know, it's just like elk are not where we thought they should be yet. And it's a little concerning. I mean, there's, there's definitely not the population base. We have not found the concentration that we thought we would by now. So, yeah. 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 I mean, right now I, you know, I don't know quite where they are but i'll figure it out you know it's it's the it's the great game right we we figure things out and that's why we survived as a species and and they survived as a species because they're hard to figure out and i think too i think you see that kind of uh all that trigger flip a little bit like we're talking about dates i think and i don't know when you want to source into this but like the 6th through the 13th yeah there is that flip of elk that you know it's like you don't see them you don't see them you don't see them and then pretty soon it's just boom they show up and they're doing their thing right and it's like where in the world have these things been they're like ghosts and then pretty soon the circus is the circus is on yeah so yeah and and, and that's a hormonal thing right and at, at the risk of of giving a comparison that puts my my life in danger but point been around um a a woman who's pregnant and you know, sometimes <laughs> moods can change rapidly and uh, even like cravings, right? Like really strong, strange cravings um, can occur with uh, almost a violence like that. That's hormonal. And, and that's what's going on with elk too, is as the daylight changes and the temperature changes and the food quality changes, like they're, they're feeling things that cause them to act very differently than they do the rest of the year. But this is an elk series, and we are talking about hunting the Rocky Mountain elk or the Roosevelt elk from uh, September 6th through 13th. Um, this episode's coming out on the 6th. You guys have hunted elk for how long now? Mm, long time. I, since, I uh, since a tag holder, I think um, this is like 26 or 27 seasons now, I think. Okay. Somewhere there. So, you know, but, but, between the three of us, you know, well over, yeah, a lot, a lot of days, a lot, a lot of days. Of hunting. <laughs> and days, it's not just the years, right? Sure. It's, yeah. um, it, it's the amount of time that you guys spend hunting because you're, you know, you're hunting a lot of States every year, you know, you're either hunting or traveling every day of archery season. And then some of the days of rifle season and in many States and, and you've been exposed to elk behavior and elk situations in more ways than just about anybody I know. And that's given you a, a big amount of data to base your experiences and, and predictions off of. So let's, you know, generically talk about this September 6th. Like what's the plan? <laughs> you know, I mean, for us, and I, I would say a, a lot of plans do change throughout the season, but the base core of what we do doesn't differ uh, a drastic difference until we find the elk. For us, it's that search, you know, and, and things may play out different as the rut kicks on and how those those bulls react. But our, our biggest thing from day one is to cover as much ground as possible, to locate, use based on, you know, what you're seeing for sign. But for us, vocal, you know, is uh, that connection that we're trying to make with an elk. Um, so we're going to go cover, like I said, on these ridges and locate bugle, cow call, locate bugle, cow call, 
keep moving and moving until we finally get a response. Um, and that, that really doesn't change. I mean, we'll, depending on the country dictates that of sound, you know, a lot of times we'll use our eyes if we can glass in country, but sound is our, our tool of location. Well, one thing I want to ask you about, we hear about covering ground a lot, and that's something that we talk about. And I think maybe we've done a bad job of explaining what that means, because I see a lot of guys who say, you just got to cover ground. And then they go out there and they just hike and they hike and they hike and they hike, or they, they ride their, ride their dirt bike or, or their, um, or their mountain bike or their e-bike, like whatever they're doing, they're just covering distance. But that's, that's not it. Like you're covering distance and then stopping intermittently. Like you, you have to be doing it for a reason. Um, traveling for the sake of traveling doesn't get you elk unless they're standing in the road. And at which point you probably just scared them and, and blew those elk up. That's a, Cody said, you know, as far as like traveling, as far as covering ground, we are using the bugle to be our guide at that point. So honestly, we are, you make a good point. It's like, do you just take off on a bike and just go? Sometimes we do, you know, usually that's at night a lot of times and we're covering ground on the road itself. And that's a different way of covering ground than obviously boots on the ground, hiking somewhere, but we are bugling. I would say every conservatively, every 200 yards, every 200 yards traveled. So, and a lot of that's going to depend on how dense the vegetation is like Roosevelt stuff. There's so many nooks and crannies and pockets and the forest is so thick that the sound doesn't travel that far. So we are actually to covering ground. When we talk about that, we're covering as much ground as we can uh, verbally hear as we think that the, that our bugle is going to travel. So if we figure that we can bugle and get out there 150 yards of sound, then we're going to cover that much ground and stop again before we call again. And I, I think it's good to, for people to do, go out with your buddy. And cause everybody thinks the bugle reaches for two miles, go out with your buddy, get in the woods and run up ahead of him and just say, Hey, rip one off and let me hear what it sounds like. You will be shocked at what you don't hear. Uh, it, the bugles do not travel as far as people think they do. And that's why like we talk about, Oh, what do you want? Do you want a cloudy day? Do you want a stormy day? Do you want a windy day? We want super cold temperatures and we want super clear skies. So that, that crisp sound travels the furthest. That's what we're looking for. When we talk about moving ground and stuff, we're talking about just going a ways to where our bugles can reach. Yeah. And, and I, to, to add on that, it's just like covering the right ground. Right. Yeah. So it's having a plan based on, you know, okay, if I, if I work this ridge top or this ridge system and we go, maybe it's an out and back, it's not a loop. Like we're going to go down the right-hand side of this ridge and bounce back and forth and then, or we'll drop down off that ridge top side hill at just above bench level, make a, a long hunt all the way out around the ridge and then hunt our way back on the other side of the ridge. And so we're, we're using those topography features versus I'm going to go across, I'm going to hike as hard as I can down this canyon, across the canyon and up, you know, it's like you could cover that ground more effectively and efficiently in the manner of coming down a finger, coming back, back around and cover twice as much of the area uh, with, with more, less physical exertion where you're not exhausted and you're not. So day two, you're, well, I'm going to sleep in this morning, you know, type scenario. Hunting so, with intent, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I would agree with that with, you know, any aspect of, of recreation where, you know, whether you're trying to catch a fish or anything like the dudes that just cast and beat water, like, yeah, they're, they're going to catch some fish. But the guy that, that looks hard and goes, oh, there's a micro seam right there. I'm going to run a drift through that. That's a more successful angler. And there's a lot of similarities between fishing and trying to find um, that bull that's willing to hook up that that's willing to play the game with you. Right. So when you call, how long are you waiting? And, and is that a set thing or, uh, is that situationally dependent? Everybody does it a little bit different. Uh, what we go through is kind of a sequence, especially like that time of year 
the bulls probably already started bugling a little bit. They started stealing their oats. They might even have a herd already. They might, um, you know, have had their ass kicked by another elk already, or you, you never know. We always talk about, you never know what happens the night before, you know, so you don't know what you're coming into that morning or that day. But what we, what we do is we do a sequence. So sometimes we'll first start out with just a high, just as, as, as high pitch as we can and sit there and wait. And we don't wait that long before we are going to throw out another bugle, which might be followed by a chuckle. And there's certain elk that's, it's the, the weird thing about elk is some of them will only respond to this sound. Like you yeah. hit this note, some will only respond to that note or some, if you don't chuckle, they will not bugle back, which is really weird in the, in the realm of things, but it, it makes the dance so much more fun because it's like, okay, now I know what his button is. Now let's push that button enough to get him in here and shoot him. So it, it's, we'll do like bugles and we'll do a bugle and a chuckle. And usually we start out with some cow calls in between act like a herd. That's uh, elk make noise. They are very, very loud. So break something and, and, you know, and, and smash a stick against a tree or rub a tree or anything that you can do to sound realistic. A herd is very, very, very loud vocal uh, when they're not spooked, when they're just in a resting state, you know, they're, they're always talking back and forth. So do exactly that to make them feel comfortable to entice them to bugle back. Yeah. And, and that date wise between that six and 13th, we've also, those elk may not bugle, but they may be coming. And so we we've definitely had the scenario. We'll, slow play some, some stuff. We know that there's elk around here. We're in a lot of sign, a lot of fresh sign. We've maybe seen them there the day before. We'll slide into some of those spots, call a little bit softer. And next thing you know, you'll hear a stick break. Like there's been numerous times that we've not heard a bull bugle. We heard a stick break and we set up on that stick break. And, um, and it definitely like early before say the September 15th mark, there's, more likelihood of those elk coming to investigate what's going on. Cause they're like, like you talk about the hormonal change. There's been a cow that's been in heat. They're like, Hey, things, things are different around here, but they may not come in full charge screaming their face off um, in that time period. So I would say earlier in the season, in that date range, we play things a little bit slower than we do on September 18th, you know? So now, a lot of us have been around gunfire, you know, Trent used to cut trees for a living, um, running chainsaws, heavy equipment, you know, there's a lot of elk hunters out there who have not the best hearing that they used to anymore. And uh, I definitely right. have days. That was an arrow my... right at me, wasn't it? That was just a shot fired. <laughs> hey, you, you, and, you and me both, man. Um, You're not wrong. I mean, not tanks, wrong. Are, tanks are loud, you know, <laughs> but uh yeah. And I have days when I can hear better than others, but some, sometimes like if, if I hear an elk really well, like you should probably knock your arrow. And, uh, and trying to determine an elk's location from its bugle is really hard. Um, really, really hard. I think people underestimate that. And they also, you know, it, it, unless they go out and they do that bugling back and forth and understand, you know, that elk are probably louder than, than most of us when we're calling. If, if you hear a bugle close to you, it, it's, it shakes you. That's a different thing. I feel like a lot of people set up a little bit too early. Um, if you do actually have a bull bugling at you, but that investigation thing, that's tricky. And I, I've definitely seen that a lot of times where, you know, I called for a while and left and now I'm looking back at that ridge where I was an hour ago and there was an elk sniff in the ground, like, mm. <laughs> you know, we've, I think we've all done that. Yeah. Or you give it the token 15 minutes and like, uh, maybe that was just a squirrel and you take a step over the rise and blow, blow a bowl <laughs> out. Like that's, that's, uh, it's definitely, definitely been the case. Do you that's think you're stepping on that stick on purpose? Is that a form of communication? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I think that elk can be sneaky when they want to be sneaky. Yeah. yeah. And then elk will normal, just doing their thing. They're just doing their thing. But I, I definitely see that when they want to be quiet, they can slip and, you know, be intentful on that. James, you brought up a good, uh, 
like hearing a bugle and the location of the bugle. And that's our biggest thing as far as like, like if we can pinpoint that bugle, then we can start to really put together a whole playbook of, okay, how are we going to kill this thing? Where's the thermals? What's going on? If we can pinpoint exactly where that bugle came from. And what we'll do a lot of times, because we hunt in bigger groups, which is an advantage for us, is we'll take guys and the first guy will be bugling out this way. The other two guys will turn there a little bit, you know, to, to actually for directional purposes because you have no idea how many times we'll hear a bugle and two guys will point this way one guy will point 180 the direct opposite way of of both the guys and you're like how and then we'll look at each other and like what's your percentage how how confident are you that that where it was and then they'll go uh 80 i'm sure it was this way and we're like all right that's probably the way it was but it, it it's it's kind of it's, it helps us by having so many people in our crew and our crew to, to decipher that out sometimes. How do you determine when you want to have the last word or when you want the elk to have the last word? Mm, how far away they are. Okay. And it depends on Same how more. many, how many people as well. So, so it, I get, we get a ton of questions of, Hey, I'm hunting by myself. Is this even possible? Because when they watch us on film, <clears throat> we were we hardly ever hunt by ourselves and um so we have the advantage of having a collar back and being able to just keep that bull going right to the shot of impact whereas if you're alone you need to know when to shut up and that's a big big thing as far as and we talked about sticks breaking and you know giveaways i guess that you would have from elk as far as coming in and um you need to know when to be quiet and Elk are amazing. Like I said, we have a tough time pinpointing them. They know from that bugle exactly where we're standing. They know that they live it. They do it every single day. So we've had a lot of times where you bugle and there'll be 300 yards and a bull will walk directly to where your feet are just from that one bugle. So we've had that numerous times where they know, they know where you're at. And that's why, you know, we always say get on their level because if you're up on a bench, they're only going to come so far. And if you're, if they're above you, they're only going to come so far. They want to see, they've got all these things. They kind of try to smell you, see you and hear you. They've already heard you and they're going to try to get wind possibly, but they want to see what they're looking at. And, and they're not dumb. That's why so many people say, well, he came 80 yards. He wouldn't come any further. You know, you hear that all the time. It's just, he wanted to verify what, what was being said down there with, with an actual body of an elk. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are looking for like, what's the magic formula, right? What do you do every single time mm. you hear an elk? To that answer, there's like no, not many Collins are the same. I mean, there, there's some similarities amongst them, but there's micro differences between each and every one. And it's, you know, it's time in the field and experience knowing like, okay, well, this has happened in the past. So that's maybe I could do this. Well, that didn't work. Then I've got another trick up my sleeve over here that I'm going to try to employ on, on that calling sequence. Um, so I think it, it really is variable on a lot of different circumstances that, you know, there isn't like you bugle here, then you'd give a challenge bugle and then, you know, you cut them off and give it, if he answers to the cow call, you cut him off again, then he's coming. Like there's, there's definitely not a formula of how that it, it's definitely the art form of the dance per se as, on the strategy side of it. So, yeah, it's a, it it is such an interesting game and you'll get it wrong much more than you'll get it right. So how do you, how do you learn from the times that you get it wrong? Like how do you turn that into a, a positive experience that, that you can build off of rather than a frustration that, you know, takes you farther away from success? I think the big thing there is just to talk about it. Like what did go wrong? Identify those things, understand the situation and what unfolded and where, where things went away. Um, I, th- I think that's number one, just acknowledging that going through it and understanding it. Um, so you do, you know, take account versus like, Oh, better luck next time. Let's move on and go find another one. And that goes for everything too. That goes for business. That goes for just human nature. I think anything, you know, I mean, if there's a, something that you're working towards and it doesn't work out the first time, you know, take a couple steps back, kind of reevaluate and say, what went wrong there? Why didn't it work? And then try to map out those things so you don't do them next time. 
Yeah. And, and within that, it could just be that like, that was the wrong, the wrong currency for that bull. Like you could try that same thing again, or what feels like the same thing again on another elk one ridge over and it works. Or it's the sixth through the 13th and it should have been the 14th through the 22nd. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, my, my favorite, favorite days to, to kill elk, like my most successful days tend to be somewhere between the ninth and the 14th. You know, my, my calling style and, you know, the things that I do, the places that I hunt, like those are the days that I'm really confident that I can call on a bull during those days and get him killed. If I've got the right weather and the right moon and, and all those things, like, you know, if you, if you get too close to the rut, um, it, it becomes really challenging, really, really challenging to, to actually get a bull to move. You know, it's exciting hunting, but man, it can be tough. The sixth, gosh, I think right in there somewhere, like one of the best calling experiences of my life was, was like the sixth or the seventh. And I ended up calling in half a dozen bulls, um, to, to my client and he never moved his feet. And he had those bulls between like 15 and 30 yards. And they just came in one after another. And we'd gotten close to a wallow where a bunch of these bulls were, you know, just kind of playing the social game, figuring out who each other were. And I was able to call in one after the next. And every single one of those bulls wanted something different. One of them wanted chuckles. One of them wanted raking. One of them wanted cow calls. One of them wanted calf calls. And kind of as I went through like the t- different tools in my bag, that one of those tools worked for every single one of those elk. And it was just, it was so neat. And I think, you know, that client's hunted all over the world. He's hunted his whole life. And, and that's a special experience and memory for him too, to, to have that. And, and just remember standing there and getting to shop through all these bulls and kill none of them. Um, and he drew his bow on every single one of them. And every time I was like, give it to him, you know, <laughs> so excited. But, uh, but at the end of it, like, it was just a really special night and you can have those nights during, during these days in the season. Um, I think it, it can be some of the just most fun out there. Yeah. I think the one thing that I, last year I hunted in um, Wyoming from the opener, September 1st and our buddy Ward from hunting public, he killed on the 12th. So we got like, we, we hunted a pretty small area and it was the first time where I really got to watch the development of the rut activity and see everything. We were able to glass these bulls. And I mean, there was a bachelor group of six bulls on the first that were all nice, like very mature bulls all together doing their thing. And by the end of it on the 12th, things finally all split up. They had cows, they were no longer brothers at the frat house. I mean, they were on the prowl hard fighting. So um, I think it, you just never know. Is it going to be the fifth or the sixth? Is it going to be the ninth or 10th where you wake up that morning just feels a little bit different and things, you know, are different in the woods. So I have a question for you. Um, if, if I could only hunt one moon phase, it would be a quarter waxing moon. That that's my most confident moon phase but I don't get the luxury of being able to pick moon phases because I hunt the entire season, just like you guys do. Um, do you have um, one phase of the moon cycle that is, is your confidence amount of illumination or do you not even think about it? Don't even think about it. No, it's, it's one of those things we get asked that a lot too. And it's like, go hunting whenever you can. That's <laughs> yeah. what we, is what we do is, yeah. is because a lot of times it, you know, for the, for 90% of people, it's, you know, I only get this week off work. This is what I have. And so I don't, the last thing that you want in the back of your mind is this, well, the moon's not going to be right, you know, and everything. It's just like, we've killed on full moons. We've killed on half moons. We've killed on stormy days, sunny days. Um, it, it just, it, just depends on that mood of that elk at that time. And I think that where we kind of say cover ground. So we talked about fishing a little bit ago and our, our, our model of hunting is a lot like fishing, except we're speed fishing. We are looking for a biter. We're going to go down that stream. We're not going to hit, we know there's five fish in that hole. We're not going to fish that hole all day. 
and just trying to get one. We are going to cover that river and look for that one that's just hungry and that just right when you come by first time it bites. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a biter and that's why the covered ground technique works so well is because we're just covering ground looking for that one elk. We may we may go by, I don't know how many elk in that time period, but that one that wants to play our game, that's the one that we're going to try to capitalize on. Yeah. The only thing that moon phase changes us some is like activity levels per se of what, what's going on during the day based on what the moon does. And for us, we've had really good experience midday when it is full moon. Those elk seems like they, they were up late, they bed early. And then, you know, that 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, mid morning, later morning, that's when the, some activity starts to grow with those elk and we've had really good success on those um, midday madness per se on a full moon. Um, you know, and it's like on a new moon, then things are, it, it's a daylight scenario and uh, they're, they're going to be on their feet up and moving. And, you know, so I, I that's kind of the one observation that I've seen over the years. Now, if you're going to do a backcountry hunt and you don't have a vehicle to get around, you know, you're just left foot, right foot in it. Does that change your game at all? If, if you can't necessarily um, just eat up ridge after ridge and basin after basin? I'd like to say yes, but no, it doesn't. Really? We, yeah, we, we, we've definitely, and, and this is where our mentality, we used to be like, okay, we're going to go in for 10 days. We've got 10 days worth of gear, food, all that. Well, day number four, we've like pretty much turned over every stone that's physically in this area that we feel comfortable that we kill one to pack it out, you know? So now our mentality is like, all right, we're going to go in on this for four days, three nights worth of food. And we're going to cover every little bit of it as fast or, you know, as thorough as we can. Um, and we're either going to kill one or we're moving on to a different place, you know, based on that. So always have numerous spots never just go we're elk hunting here this year go we're going to elk hunt here and if we don't find them we're going to go here and then if we don't find them we're going to go here and there's been a lot of times we've taken all night long to drive clear across the state of colorado for some stupid idea that we had that there was elk in this other spot and show up and hike in a trailhead and shoot an elk you know it's just do not be afraid to move do not be afraid yeah and, and that's one of my big issues with, with deep backcountry hunts. Like you're, you're committed to that. Um, yeah. And if, if that's the experience you want, great. But I, I commonly tell people the reason to hunt backcountry, like sure enough backcountry is that it's easier once you get there because those animals have seen fewer people. Um, the hard Not thing any- about hunting backcountry is getting there. Yeah. Not anymore though everybody everybody's there i know and it's a it's such a silly thing um and i i know that a lot of meat gets wasted i don't support that it's incredibly challenging to carry a bull for four miles four miles um like that turns into 30 miles by the time you've gotten it done and 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 those are heavy heavy miles too so if you think you're going to bomb in 14 miles deep somewhere and get an elk out, like you're crazy, crazy. You no, know, you're, you're going to probably lose some meat. Yeah. We, we kind of started out like that a little bit. As far as when we started cutting our teeth uh, out of state of Oregon, we did, we would hike back in eight miles and then set up camp and everything. We have the luxury of five, six guys though. So it's like you right. kill an elk, it's one trip, everybody. And you yeah. can actually divvy up the meat and it actually is better, but it's still a, it's still a huge undertaking. And that's where just in the last, I would say, three years, you saw people have seen us go from that eight mile zone and suck it way back. There's a middle zone in there in between the quote unquote backcountry guys to the road hunter. There's that middle zone that's half a mile to three miles and on the long end that that there's a lot of elk in that, a lot of opportunity in that. Yep, I, I agree with that. And I'm almost hesitant to say it because I like having the front country to myself right now, <laughs> but it's, it's the reality. Like, you know, the, the horse guys aren't going to stop until they're six miles deep and the truck guys, 
they're not going to get a mile from their truck. They're just not. And they probably shouldn't, you know, a mile's a lot, but if you're a mile down a trail and half a mile off a trail, you're probably by yourself. Not yeah. all the time, but probably. Are we calling ourselves the front country hunters now? Is that what? That's not a I'm, term. I like it. I'm all about hunting the front, dude. <laughs> all about it. <laughs> Love it. And you know, if you, if you start to think of it from an e- ecological standpoint, um, that stuff that's closer to the edge of something, you know, if we're talking about the front, we're talking about edge habitat, that's critical habitat, that, that middle ground that becomes a little bit monogamous and, and it's, and it's vegetation type and train type. It, it's not as special. It's not as critical habitat um, to these animals. So, you know, once you get up to the tree line and you get back into the, the meadows and stuff like that, again, you know, that's, that's more edge habitat. That's, that's the different thing, but you know, there's a lot of elk in the valley, um, but they're not during, they're not in the valley during the day. So, you know, on the front, you know, get on the edge. Love it. It's, it's very well said. I mean, and a good observation because that's, yeah, I never thought on, on the terms of edges, but you can kind of get lost in the mass in between um, and all that stuff. So what's a mistake you made last year that you're not going to make this year? <laughs> Oh, that's, Just a great question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. That's a mistake individually or as a team. <laughs> I mean, Trevor couldn't make it. We don't need to talk about Trevor. Okay. Oh man. Uh, Cody, you got something? Um, you know, I, I think, um, I, one mistake that we made last year, like in the same back to that hunt in Wyoming, is we watched elk for three days in the same spot before we went after them and hindsight like day one okay there they are let's figure out how to make a plan and and go after them and we kind of like went through that like oh let's observe let's observe let's observe versus like you can't kill them from a thousand yards away or a mile away glassing them you know you got to put yourself in that in that position to to kill so you know, I would say because what, what happened is or what could have happened is someone else could have been seeing those same elk and they could have gone in there the next morning or that afternoon. Instead, we sat back and watched just because it was cool to see. You know, I mean, there was these nice bulls on this bench just living, doing their thing. And we observed too much. So, um, you know, I think it correlates to that time in the field, like put yourself in the best position for the longest amount of time that you can in order to make things go right. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's all feels good and dandy to glass up elk, but you ain't going to kill them doing that. So one of the ways that, you know, I I've interpreted how you, how you have, have influenced other hunters is you've made people want to hunt the entire season. And I, I think that's fantastic. You learn so much from hunting the entire season, but most of these guys are, are hunting single, single states. And I support that a hundred percent, you know, hunt, hunt where you can, but how do you, how do you manage fatigue throughout the season? Um, because that's a, that's a real thing. I mean, I'm, I, I am utterly exhausted by the end of archery season. And then I've still got rifle seasons on top of each other to go, but typically I'm getting three or four hours of sleep a night as a guide, which is a, a, you know, a little bit different. There's extra things that I have to do as a guide that you don't have to do when you're hunting privately. But since you guys are filming, there's extra things that you have to do as well. So how do you manage that? You know, when are you sleeping? When are you taking zero days? Like how, how does it work? We don't, we don't take too many zero days. It depends. I mean, like when we first did land of the free, we were five States all the way through. And it was, I mean, it was 53 days straight of hunting and you would use nights to travel in between state to state and go for the next state. Cause you were meeting up with a whole other company. So what we did is we met up with different, different companies through and collaborated with every 10 days. So you get there and you're maybe dog tired, but they've got fresh legs. They're ready. They've been waiting all season for you to get there and go. And so you got to just kind of, you know, strap them up and go. And I, it's, it's, I guess it's cliche a little bit to say a little bit, but a lot of it's just mind frame. You just have to just kind of grind on and get through it. I mean, all of us do some do training and stuff like that before season and, and things, but a, a lot of it is just 
having the mindset of just, we're going to do this, we're going to make this happen and we're just going to get it done, you know? Yeah. And, and I think the one thing that over the time we've learned too, is like, don't, don't beat ourselves up for sleeping in the morning. I mean, in, in this case, like we, we, we've definitely had some great daylight encounters with elk, but we've had more midday encounters and, you know, we use the mornings more on the location side of it to try to figure out where they're going to get them killed. Um, and, and so I know people have made comments like it's daylight and you guys are just getting up. It's like, well, we, you know, in this case we are backpacked in. So, you know, we're, it's not like we've got to cover three to four miles to get into where we want to start hunting. We're already there. So 7am sounds great, you know, um, and, and having, having that kind of like, it's okay for that. And, and mentally, you know, we're going to grind it out all day. And that's, I think for us typically is we don't do the early mornings back at camp at 10 AM. Don't go out again until 5 PM. It's like, we might start at seven, but we're going to hunt all day long through the whole, the whole day. Um, And just pace yourself. You know, I think uh, having the fatigue is, is, one that is pushed through, like Trent said, the mental fortitude to, man, this is a grind and we're going to make it to the top of this hill, but it might take us an extra half hour. We're going to take a break and have a laugh and enjoy the moment versus, you know, instead of just worry about the destination. You asked a little bit ago, the question of what was a mistake that you made, you know, last year or whatnot. I think, I think honestly, I've just been thinking about that since you asked it and it's just like, it kind of goes with this whole question as well. It's just like, I would say it's when we don't hunt as a team, when we don't, when we try to get individual with it and we try to push something that shouldn't be pushed at the time and not, not pull it back and say, Hey guys, what do you think about this? What do you think we should do? And really like break it down as a team. And cause we succeed as a team and we fail as a team all the time. I mean, that happens every single year, but when we succeed, it's not, Hey, Cody killed a 380 inch elk. It's we killed a 380 inch elk or I did actually, if it's three, never mind. Two, two, but, 280. <laughs> 280. Oh, 280. That's right. 280. Dang it. But no, it just, it's just, I think it goes back to a lot of things that we do is just is what has gained our success is team is working together as a team for one common goal. And it, it doesn't matter who is behind that bow, you know, who's pulling that trigger on that gun or whatever. It's we all got there as a team. And I think I think that's can be a, a big, big success and failure if you don't look at it that way. You know, we talk, we're joking about scores a little bit here, but um, my favorite elk hunt that I ever guided, which um, I, I don't know, I think I probably put – around 130 elk on the ground at this point guiding we shot a calf and you know if you're going to use a score metric like there's there's the spectrum of bulls and then there's cows and then there's calves right at the very bottom (laughs) um and it was for a dad and his son and the dad was sick and he was going in for a surgery on a thursday that he had like a 10 percent chance of surviving and uh and we had a tuesday to hunt and we blew these elk up a bunch of times. Um, he wasn't able to get in a position and get comfortable enough to take a shot. And they were about to leave and be gone forever. And this cow stopped in the timber and I said, there she is, you know, <laughs> let her eat. And, uh, and he shot and a calf like five feet away from her went down like a rock and he'd, he'd missed by five feet and shot that calf in the head. And uh, it's an antlerless elk tag boys. And I could not have been happier. You know, I think it was only his second elk ever and he'd hunted, you know, pretty much his whole life. It was incredible. Um, and the experience that, that those guys got to have at that time in their lives, you know, that father and son, it was, you know, it was incomparable. And then he ended up surviving this, the surgery and got to live a little bit longer. And, um, I mean, it was, it was just a really special thing. And, I I'm, I'm critical of scores, but I'm also appreciative of them. Um, but I really want to encourage people not to let somebody else's standards of a number affect their experience. hundred thousand percent. I, I, I just to add on that, I think people, especially now with, with social media, YouTube, people sharing content, like they see success of another person and then based the only way that they could be successful is what, that other person experienced and want that. And I mean, Lord knows we've killed 
our boatload of spikes, little rags, anything legal opportunity first. It's, you know, and would not have it any other way and have no, no qualms on. We don't discriminate. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I watched one of your guys' videos and I think it was one, one where Trent shot a spike and uh, I was like, yeah. I like these guys. These guys might have happened. Um, might have happened. <laughs> Fuzzy horn one in Wyoming. That was a... oh, I could actually drag that spike by hand, guts, feathers, and all. It was that small. <laughs> it was that small. <laughs> Grew up eating spike meat. You know, our yeah. our only over the counter rifle hunt um, for the longest time was was a spike only tag, oh. and you know you you couldn't you couldn't get a hunt every year. Right. So if, if you wanted to get an elk every year, which we needed, you're going spike hunting. And I thought like, this is what elk meat is. And then when I grew up a little bit and got to hunt some bigger bulls, I was like, Oh, this is what elk meat is too. I'm going to go back to eating spikes. Uh, you grew up on the best of the best. It is. It is good. Okay. Um, Man, calling is like the thing that makes makes elk what it is for the most part. I mean, anytime you can call an animal and you can communicate with it and manipulate its behavior with sounds that you're making makes for a really special hunting experience. And I think that's that's what draws people to waterfowl. That's what draws people to turkeys. And, uh, you know, there's some really terrific animals out there in the world that we hunt, but our experience with them is, is different if you're just stalking that animal or, or waiting to ambush that animal versus actually engaging with them the way we do with elk. And the more you hunt, the more you're going to find little glitches in gear. And then you're going to go out and you're going to shop for something that's, you know, a little bit better. And sometimes there's nothing out there. And you guys ran into a situation where you felt like there wasn't the calls out there that you wanted, that you needed. So you took the initiative to start a call company. Now I want to hear more about it. And it's been a journey, uh, <laughs> been a journey for sure. No, I think um, for us, it's like always trying to innovate, you know, I mean, I had a design background and so, was, you know, we could draw this up. I remember making our, my first goose call when I was like 19 years old, I had a buddy turn it on a lathe for me. And so it's like, was it made out of, out of jet boat aluminum? No, that one wasn't. No, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, so I think for us, it was, it was just like, what else is, what else could be done in that space? Um, and we've really tried to bring ideas and we've played around with uh, a, a lot of options, trying to get a better sound louder, you know, how, what's more realistic? How do, how do we, um, do a better job at our, at the mission of trying to call an elk in. And, um, so it's, it's been a fun journey, um, for us and, you know, it's, yeah, it's just in its infancy. I mean, we, we, we have a lot of lofty goals and ambitions to where and how we want to go forward, but it's been a fun one over the last year. And it's, yeah. And it's not just the last year. It's been something yeah. that's been on our minds forever for all this time. And, and, it, you know, everybody always says, man, I wish I would have, I wish I would have, I wish I, the wish I would have we had is like that wish we would have started this years ago when we wanted to start this, when we actually had the ambition and actually had this, had this dream and this, you know, instead of just like settling, you know, uh, I think, man, we always, we, we talk about that all the time, right? As far as, oh man, if we'd only done this 10 years such ago, we such and such. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had the idea and like, let's do it. And then we all got chicken and scared and said, Nope, we're not going to do it. So, yep. And anyway, so it's really cool to see it to come to fruition. That being said, they said manufacturing would be fun. <laughs> they said it was going to be easy. They said, Oh, we'll have something to you in a couple of weeks. Well, yeah, it's not the way it goes, especially in COVID times. So it's been, it's been a journey trying to, find every little piece because i mean if you look at like what we're trying to do it's not just getting a plastic bubble tube from wherever and in in a factory to here it's getting uh everything that makes up a reed you know having all the aluminum parts and then designing that aluminum part testing it making sure it works and then getting the latex 
from wherever the latex comes from and then getting the tape, wherever tape, it just all these tiny little things that to make up this one call has to be all in order. And so it's, we've, we've ran into some, some little snafus. Ooh, right Ooh, there. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. curvy. It's yeah. curvy. Yeah. You guys can't see what I'm seeing and that's yeah. okay, but it's curvy. Yeah. yeah. Little, little art that that's been the one thing that's been, you know, we just went through, like Trent said, trial and error, trial and error. How do, how do we make it easier for people that, that can't blow a diaphragm? Like let's, let's go through all of it. How is, how do we make the easiest cow call known to man that sounds good? And, you know, so we've been, it's been fun. Like I said, uh, it's, it's been a good challenge. Um, it's outside our wheelhouse of like, we know how to go chase elk and have fun doing that. Well, now let's figure out how to manufacture something that can help everyone get in the woods and be a successful. And the biggest, successful. the biggest thing that we didn't want to do is just to make another call, just to have another call on the market. Just to, you know, if we were going to do it, we wanted to innovate. And that's what we've spent so much time. Like our, like our external cow calls, they're built out of acrylic where the sound actually it's built off of a duck call frame to where the sound actually distributes through the end of the call and just doesn't come off the plate of the call, you know, uh, like a lot of the others on the market. So there's everything that we're doing, we're innovating and heading towards a direction to, to change the style of hunting as far as if, if, if it's not just make the cleaner sound, but to make it easier for people to do. And you guys have very, very intelligently partnered with Eric Strand for this, who is, you know, I'd go so far as to say a legendary caller. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's got the experience with call companies. He's a really nice guy and, and he works hard. Um, so not, not only is this about elk, we're talking what else, what other species are we going to be calling with, with born and raised calls? Yeah. So the whole gambit of waterfowl um, from honkers, lessers, cackler, specs, mallards the whole the whole gambit there um and then into the turkey side of life you know bulls of the spring the uh, the uh as, as i like to equate it easy easy i know i'm on the wrong call wow. for this wow <laughs> i know i but okay here's james here's a question we we talked through turkey camp this this was a hot topic for us every night so if you could only pick one to hunt the rest of your life, would it be an elk-sized turkey or a turkey-sized elk? Turkey-sized still... elk, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> but no question in my mind. Oh. The opposite. Could you imagine a velociraptor that gobbled? Here it comes. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean... <laughs> I, I think we, we tried that once historically, but uh, <laughs> no, man, that, that sounds bad. That sounds scary to me. And I, I've wanted lots of scary stuff and you know, that, that I'm glad I did that. Um, but yeah. Oh my gosh. A, a, a 20 pound elk. That sounds amazing. I have one of those, those miniature uh, 3d elk targets. It's, mm-hmm. you know, third size. I love that thing. Yeah. And it's so humbling. Like it is the, the destroyer of arrows and confidence. Um, and confidence. And such, such a mind game. Cause you're like, Oh, I'm shooting at an elk. And like, it's like, you're not here. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, no, I think baby elk sounds, sounds fun. I think that would be, yeah. I, I, I wish elk were smaller. I I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. I wish elk were smaller. Wow, yeah, a lot they're of, too heavy. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, that's you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, that is a fact. I'm, I'm also assuming at this point that we could shoot more than one in a year. You know, maybe we could get three elk tags in a year. That that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. some states you can allow what the turkey thing. You can just go get another one and yeah. get another one, another one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that sounds good to me. Maybe uh, you know we can we can draw. Elon Musk into uh, into the hunting scene and he can start genetically modifying these things and we can get our, our baby elk population going and <laughs> pick, pick your Hawaiian Island. I, I feel like that's the right, right place to do it. Get a yeah. good start on the Oregon coast here. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, mistakes, mistakes that, that you see people making. Um, I feel like this is a, this is a great thing. Everybody kind of likes to see themselves 
as an individual and like, oh, I don't make the same mistakes as everybody else. My experience is a lot of people do make the same mistakes and you can start pulling on the thread of those commonalities. What's been your observation with that? Man, there's a, t- I mean, you could go down a ton of roads with this. First, number one, I think it's just go get out there. Don't think that you can't don't think, uh, I, I think there's so many people out there that think, well, it's too hard. The mountains are way too big. And then those people, you take it that step further that do go out there day one, they just work their ass off and just try to hike like hell. And then pretty soon they're laid up for two days and they can't really hardly walk and they get back in their camper and they sleep for two days because they're so exhausted. I mean, um, one, get out there. I mean, anybody can do this. And I think that's what we try to, we try to just shout from the rooftops is anybody can hunt elk. Anybody can like, like James, you were saying, I mean, you could get a hundred yards off the road and you could be hunting elk. I mean, really you could. And it's just the whole mentality of, I can't, um, I can't afford the time off. Honestly, it's not that much. If you think about that, you know, you just budget your time for uh, your time allotted for, for season, or, you know, it's too expensive. I can't afford an extra pack and I can't afford Hanwad boots and I can't afford all these things coming from me who gets all that stuff. Yeah. That's easy for me to say, but it's true. I mean, Cody did his first, all of us did our first stuff, you know, backpacks with, you know, the boy scout backpack on, you know, the, the, and and that's, you can find at Salvation Army or, or wherever, you know, I mean, it's the, the barrier to entry is all over the map. It's just, honestly, it's just going and doing it and getting that mind frame of just going and, and, and conquering some. I feel like that's a really good point. And even to, to specify that point a little bit more to make it clear, if spending money on gear is the thing that's holding you back, military surplus is a really good option, right? Great this option. is stuff that, that's been tested, tried and true over the years. And most of us got our start using military surplus gear. And the stuff that's military surplus now, and this is strange for me, it's the stuff that I was using in the military a decade ago. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's good stuff, you know, and that, that in many ways was was the pinnacle of gear um, at that time. So yeah, you can get a great pack that, that the Marines were using a decade ago for $200, you know, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of times cheaper than that. Less than that. Um, you can buy a set of wool pants that are 20 bucks that will stand up to really bad winter conditions. Don't, don't let that be the thing that holds you back. Don't let anything hold you back and, and don't put elk up on a pedestal as like this unachievable thing. It, it can be done. I promise. Like people, people do it every year that, yeah. you know, that are, are in a skill deficit. It's amazing that people like from Pennsylvania that have never even really seen the Rocky mountains that'll come out here and say, Hey guys, you, and you, you encourage me to do it. I killed my first elk this year. It's yep. crazy, crazy. Yeah. I, I think just to touch on the mistake side of it, I think people, once you're in the field, is being indecisive, not making a decision, scared to make the wrong decision. So then they don't make any decision at all. And then everything unravels because they didn't move or didn't, didn't uh, attack versus, you know, they, they're on their heels playing defense versus that offense side of it. Um, and then the, the number one easiest, I would say, common rookie mistake, a bull's coming in, it's bugling, they jump behind the tree to grab cover and the bull comes in at 25 yards, stands there, and they can't shoot it because they have no clear view or, you know. So I think that's that's a pretty easy one. I think um, set up in the shadow, trust your camo or, or your position, and, you know, uh, get, the, get the shot versus hunker down and hide. And I mean, it's fun to look and giggle and see, oh, there's an elk right there, but you're not going to kill it. That's a, that's a great point. Like – when we, I think as hunters, and I think everybody on this call can attest to this, you turn from a hunter to a killer. And there is that moment as far as the bull's coming in and you have your shooting lanes picked, but he stops just a little bit short of your lane. The hunter is going to wait for him to get in the lane. The killer is going to know that he can take that very slight step to the left and still and shoot him. And, and that's when you kind of turn that corner, I think, into don't be afraid to maybe screw up in order to make something happen. Our tree doesn't always have the elk broadside leg forward, ready, just, you know, 10 ring at 25 yards. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes 
you have to make that opportunity. And I think a lot of people get scared to do that. And a lot of people um, leave the woods unsuccessful because they don't just turn into that killer instinct where, okay, maybe I can get away with this. This is my opportunity. All right, Trent, I'm going to throw one at you here. I love this. Okay. So the leg forward thing bothers me because it's wrong. Okay. okay. So you've, you've got the, the scapula, the, sh- the shoulder blade coming back. Okay. And then you've got, I don't know what bone it is in and up, but let's call it a humerus. Cause that's what it would be in a human, right? The okay. upper arm bone. Um, what happens when their leg goes forward is the bottom of that scapula rotates down and that big heavy bone, that arrow stopping bone actually covers up more of the kill zone when the leg is forward than it does when the leg is back. So pull up a, a, a picture of an elk skeleton and you can look at this and visualize it, but leg forward is not ideal. I knew the thought podcast was going to, it had to have one snafu and it had to have one James teaching moment in it. I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, I almost got all the way through this damn thing and it, and it finally came to fruition. So I'm going to start pulling up pictures and sending them to you. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't really matter, you know, but I, I've just heard that a bunch of times and it, it would make sense from a, uh, from a human anatomy perspective, but from an elk anatomy you know, people really don't understand what's going on underneath that skin. And they, they don't understand that kill zone as, as well as they should. And we've kind of been uh, drinking some old Kool-Aid with the shooting behind the shoulder, um, aiming right behind the crease, aiming in the crease thing for a long time. Um, and I, I really encourage people to just to start understanding that, that elk anatomy. And there's a lot of really beautiful pictures out there that, that help people understand that. Yeah, there's, yeah. It's quite, it's quite the experience of, I've never done this until Montana 2018. We uh, boned it out, leaving the quarter attached and took the layers off just to see everything. And it's pretty interesting to see how, how that structure lays. Yeah. Constant learning, constant learning. Yeah. Is there, is there one part of the season or another that, that you're really excited about this year that, that, that folks should, should also be eager about tuning into so that they can watch what happens. Yeah. We have some pretty dynamite tags this year for we've burned. I think I added it all up. I think we've burned 64 years of points. I think. Yeah. This year. So yeah, uh, we've got some really, really premier tags. So should be some awesome hunts Uh, should be some really, really good bugle action and, and uh, elk footage is what we are that's, obviously that's, hoping for. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a good year. It's the year of Oregon for us. We're staying home, which is really exciting. Super exciting. Yeah, you guys are going to be spending some time in in my neck of the woods, and I am excited for you. I'm yeah. really excited for you. And yeah. it takes a different kind of courage to wait for you know over 20 years to hunt a place, and you guys have done it. And uh, now it's time to reap the harvest. Is it going to be awesome? It's going to be awesome. You're okay. going to have an incredible experience. Um, and uh, yeah, I, my hope is that you come away from it and you say that was worth it. That was worth everything. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So. All right, gentlemen. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I appreciate you very much. Uh, encourage folks to follow you. And then, you know, if you go to this, uh, this podcast description, you're going to see links to, to everything that you need to, to follow Born and Raised and, and um, watch their videos. And you can start to look for some of these awesome calls and, and this gear to start coming up that, man, it, it, a call is just something that, that can give you that experience, that experience with an animal that, that does change your life, that gives you that lifelong memory. And it makes the difference. It makes the difference. And the perfect call is not out there. And the perfect call is different for, for every single person. Um, but if I see a call on the shelf that, that I haven't tried before, I'm going to buy it and, and give it a shot because I'm still waiting for that, that call that is just right. Um, and uh, yeah, my hope we'll is that it's yours. We'll send you some. We'll okay. I look forward to it. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, thanks again. Uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, 
Yeah. Just go out and enjoy it. Like I, I think I touched on it earlier in the podcast, enjoy the journey as much as the destination. You know, I think people get so hung up in the have to kill and that's the only way of measuring success. And I think uh, you earlier in the podcast talked, yeah, it was a successful hunt just recently that you had with your hunter. Just soak it all in, learn from it, enjoy it, live in the moment. I would agree. Yeah. All right. Cool. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my wood pile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.